I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Race, your story, six words, please send. Twelve years ago, my fellow Washington Post columnist colleague Michelle Norris posed that simple request to start a dialogue about race. Little did she know that she would hear from more than half a million people whose stories would form the foundation of her groundbreaking narrative archive called The Race Card Project. Today, those stories are part of her new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on January 19th, Norris talks about how she got people to open up about such a fraught topic, the difference between race and racism, and what someone really means when they say, you're playing the race card. And it's usually a way of saying, please stop talking. You're making me uncomfortable. You're talking about something I'd prefer not to talk about. So people can't say shut up, but they can say you're playing the race card and it's a way to shut the conversation down. You might not realize this and I'm shocked that it's this long ago. Six years ago next month, February 23rd, 2018 to be exact, you came on. You came to the podcast to talk about the Race Card Project, and I've been trying to get you back ever since because it was such a great conversation. Now I know why you were working on this behemoth uh, of a book. Talk about where. Bring us back to the beginning. Talk to us about where the the six word prompt came from and how you got people to send them to you. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. And I do remember this. I remember what I was wearing that day. I remember everything about that conversation. And I also remember how our inbox lit up from your listeners who then came and told us their six word stories. This began in 2010. And I had written a book about my family's very complex legacy. It was a family memoir called The Grace of Silence. And I knew when I was going out into the world on a 35 city book tour that I wanted to have a, a conversation. I was a host of a show called All Things Considered at that point, often closed in a studio. And this was a chance to go out in the world and have conversations with people. And I thought that conversations about race would be very difficult, that I had to come up with something that would entice people to open up a little bit. And so that's where the idea for that invitation came up. I, I went to a local Kinko's print shop in Washington, DC, and just printed 200 postcards. And they simply said, race your thoughts, please send tell me your six words. And I left them everywhere I was going on the book tour. I left them in the hotel. I left them in restaurants. I left them in airports and train stations. And people did it, Jonathan. They wrote their six words. They put a postage stamp. They sent it to me, which is such an act of intention, right? I thought no one wanted to talk about race. And yet here were people finding these postcards, often at my book events, and taking the time to write their six words. And then sometimes turning even those postcards into little works of art and sending them to me. And when I realized that I had hit something special, then I knew I had to keep going and I created a website. And all these years later, most of the submissions come in online through the website and, and people have a chance when they send in a digital submission through the racecardproject.com, they can send their six words and the backstory. And it's the backstory. The the backstories is what really fills. It's more than six words. We get to see the backstory, and we're going to talk about some of them in a moment. I want to bring something up that you write in the preface. Um, you know, a lot of times people, we, we especially in the political realm, we're so used to um, usually white politicians accusing people of color 
like you're playing the race card. You're playing the race card. Talk about why um, that that phrase always made you cringe. What did did that phrase do to the conversation around race? Well, when someone accuses you of playing the race card, and Jonathan, because of the kind of conversations that you so eloquently lead week after week, I bet people have said that to you. And it's usually a way of saying, please stop talking. You're making me uncomfortable. You're talking about something I'd prefer not to talk about. So people can't say shut up, but they can say you're playing the race card and it's a way to shut the conversation down. And I decided to call this the race card project. I'm not sure I would do it again, but I did. Hmm. And so that the title of the project. The reason I'm not sure I would do it again, because so many people write about identity and not just race as we traditionally think about it. But I called it the race card project because I wanted to take that phrase, which I didn't much like, and turn it on its head and use it to stoke a conversation as opposed to shutting a conversation down. And it has indeed done that. Um, I see that in the way that people go to the website, read other people's stories, and then share their own. I see it in what I'm hearing from people who buy the book, I have a friend, Theo, who bought the book, carried it on a weekend with her family and her adult kids and just left it on the kitchen table. And she said all weekend long, someone was picking up the book and opening to a page and then having a discussion or a debate, sometimes a, a rather emotional discussion because something really spoke to their own life or, or was something that someone was maybe offended by even. But all weekend long, the book was the center of conversations. And that's what I wanted for this book to be catalytic, to give people a chance to talk about worlds outside their own. Oh, there's so much in, 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 in what you said in that answer. I'm gonna try to get to in, in our conversation. You know, I was at your book event at Sixth and I on, on Wednesday, and there's a couple things in that conversation that I wanna pick up on that I didn't quite, that I, you know, made me go, hmm, I actually never thought of it that way. And you started talking about the conversation that there is a difference between race and racism. Talk about that. Well, when we talk about race, we automatically assume that we might be talking about racism. But even the conversation about racism is often broader than we think about it. So when we think about racism, we think about big, you know, kind of institutional barriers, um, people who were not allowed to marry who they love. Uh, people who were not allowed to live or work or learn where they wanted to because there were legal restrictions, because of segregation in America. This project has taught me, though, that when people talk about race or racism, it's often so much more granular than that. So someone writes in um, something simple about being um, an Asian student who is struggling in school a little bit, as students sometimes do, but that the teachers treat them differently because there is an expectation that they should be a super student because they are Asian. There's an expectation that they should be great at math, that they should just sail through and have, you know, 1500 SATs. And because of this, the student feels sort of like a, a, a double dose of shame. Now, when we think about racism, we probably don't think about, you know, an incident like that. Um, and, and this project has helped me understand that. And also understand that when we're talking about race as opposed to racism, you're not always talking about barriers or bad things happening to people. You're also just talking about people who are trying to figure out how to coexist. You know, the clip that you mentioned in the intro, it's interesting to me that lunchrooms come up in these stories sometimes because mm -hmm. lunch 
people are thrown together. And oftentimes that's an opportunity to get to know someone, right? You're sitting and having lunch with someone in the break room, you know, at the Washington Post that happens. Um, and, you know, the people who clean up behind themselves and the people we don't, we won't name names, but you know, that, kind of, that kind of thing happens. But in American lunchrooms, when communities change and they evolve, you also have instances where people are coming together and they're speaking different languages. You know, sometimes they're stepping outside on Friday to do Friday pr prayers and, and not everybody understands that. They're bringing food with them that looks different, smells different. That's not something that I expected to hear about, you know, when I asked people to talk about race in America. And yet those little teeny conversations about people talking about a trip to the grocery store, about what happens on the side of the soccer field when parents are standing there together rooting for the same team, but bringing different cultures with them when their kids all play on that same team. Those are the kinds of things I didn't expect to hear about. And yet it has helped me understand America in such a much more fulsome way, because I'm hearing about people talk about not just the big stuff that we talk about in the presidential primaries and, you know, when we'll charge the Capitol, the things that force us to talk about race in the news, because there's something big and seismic and explosive that's happening in the news cycle. This is what happens when Americans themselves set the agenda and say, this is what's important to me. This is what I want to talk about. And when they talk about what they want to talk about, it's sometimes very different than the conversation we are leading in American newsrooms. Right, because the, the conversations are so up here at 30,000 feet, and a lot of the, the six words that you've been sent over all these years are really down at the ground level. Um, I, there's one in here, I, I should have dog-eared it, but it's one that's like, racism is um, a flesh-colored band-aid. Yes. You know, and you, you think about that. Um, was it an act of racism as it's, we're going to leave those people out? It was just people in a room who probably all look like each other deciding to create a product and they created a product in their own image. And, mm -hmm. you know, about, well, there are people who have different skin tones and this Band-Aid is going to, you know, n not necessarily work for them. So it's not like an overt act of racism, but it is an example of the kinds of discussions that we now know are happening in businesses all across America for ballerinas, you know, when they wear those lovely lace-up shoes, they were always right. a color. Some of us who are old enough to remember our 64 Crayola color crayon yes. box, <laughs> you know, and if you were lucky, you had the big box with the built-in pencil sharpener the on the back. built-in sharpener, yes. <laughs> there was actually a color in there called flesh. You know, and I recently brought a wonderful box of actually a little tin can of crayons for one of my relatives, and it had all of these different skin tones. That's an evolution. You know, someone deciding we want to create a product that allows children to maybe draw things that look like themselves, but also all the people in the world around them. And these are discussions that are happening for makeup, for, you know, pantyhose, when women would go to buy pantyhose and it would, the color would be nude pantyhose. Dude. Nude for whom, you know? And so this, you know, it's amazing how six words, I mean, I could do a whole deep dive story about businesses in America that are trying to figure out how to market their products to a bigger, broader America because they're interested in the color green, you know, and the, and the money that they will make if they figure out right, how to do right. it. 
And and that is, you know, there are so many examples, Jonathan, of how those six words are, are interesting windows or portals for us as storytellers, you know, to walk through that six word open door and use that as a way to understand America. You know, when I mentioned the the the, the Band-Aid six words, we put up on the screen other six words that um, in, on postcards uh, that folks saw a moment ago, stop racism, stop talking about it, help me not to see race. But the one that jumped out at me that we also showed was both the scissors and the glue. Do you have any, did you get a, a, a deeper dive into that? I kind of think I know where that's going, but if you have more intel on that, that'd be great. You know, this is someone I haven't talked to. If you've noticed, they didn't leave their contact information. Sometimes mm. people do, sometimes people don't. So this is not one, but it is it is one of those cards that is purposely ambiguous, right? Both the scissors and the glue, the thing that divides us, but also the thing that if we're, if we're smart can also unite us. I mean, one of the things we know about, we're a country that's known for innovation. If you work in a lab, whether it's a technology lab or a science lab, if you work in a newsroom, we're better at what we do. We're more innovative in our thinking if lots of different people are bringing lots of different perspectives to the table. That is a well-known fact. And despite all the conversations that we're having about DEI and whether it's good or bad, the fact is that when rooms are more, you can define diversity however you want, but when there are lots of different people who bring lots of different perspectives and lots of different experiences, whatever product, whatever thing is being developed in that space will be stronger and richer because of that diversity. And it also is one of the reasons that people who often come from very homogenous places around the world are interested in coming to America because it is such a diverse space. And so this thing that should be, at least to my mind, a shining achievement in America, our, our diversity is often seen as instead a millstone, you know, mm -hmm. something that, you know, that weighs us down. And so I would, I would love for a chance to talk to the person that sent that in, but I sometimes love when people send in, you know, those kinds of cards that make us think because there's more than one way to think about it. If you remember the last time that we were together talking about the race card project, we talked about one of the cards that's in the book, Grandma sent $100 when we broke up. Yes. And how different people have different interpretations of that. When you're hearing that just now with Jonathan and I talking about it, I bet different people listening to this, watching this, will have a different idea about who grandma was. You know, was she chasing away a girlfriend that she didn't really like? Or was she trying to console someone whose heart was broken because the relationship didn't work out? Or if she was chasing someone away, was it because she just wanted that grandchild who's now an adult to bring home someone who would help extend the family traditions, whatever it happened to be, whether they were making Google or Kugel or Gumbo or um, Cristaldes, you know, whatever it happened to be, wanting someone that would help the family carry on those traditions. And yet the other thing I know from the race card project, if it was a cross-cultural coupling and if the relationship did work out, you know, families evolve and they take on additional traditions. I mean, one of the favorite one of my favorite cards comes from John Letman in Hawaii, and his six words are, my son is not half, he's double. Hmm. And the, I love that is because he and his wife just decided that we're not going to cleave our child in half. We're going to accept that he gets both of our cultures. 
And he is better because of that. And we are better because of that, because we're going to embrace both things and we're not going to try to force him to choose. And yet, when he goes to school or goes to the doctor, he probably has to choose just one box, you know, right. out, you know, filling out a form. You know, one thing, as you tell that that story, you know, he's double, the child is double, not half. Made me think of something else that came up at the Sixth and I event, which made me think about this, this tension between, is this nation uh, a gorgeous mosaic, as the late Mayor David Dinkins used to say about, about New York City, or is America a melting pot, which was what the way the nation talked about itself all these different people come to the United States and they get into this giant pot and we are one. And you told the story about a, 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 I think it was a Latina or a Latina, Latina who is first generation, but her parents or their parents decided not to teach them English. I'm sorry, not to teach them Spanish. Um, and the tension that caused within the family with the cousins and the rest of the family who all spoke Spanish. I mean, language comes up over and over and over again, particularly for Latino culture, Latino culture, because there are people who um, try to hold on to dual cultures often through language. And then people who don't learn Spanish often feel like they're less authentic, you know, when they go out into the world or particularly in their home communities. In Alicia's case, she um, had a big family and her parents grew up at a time where when they went to school, they were wrapped on the knuckles if they spoke Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, to become American. We want you to become American, so speak English. And so they wanted their children to go as far as their talents would take them. So they decided that they weren't going to teach the kids Spanish, that they would be English-speaking kids, and they tried to speak English at home so the kids would also speak English without an accent. And what happened within the family, and this is, again, how this is a window into the little tiny things that I would never get a chance to see otherwise. Her parents' siblings, her aunts and uncles, had their own kids, and they spoke Spanish with those kids. And so when Alicia would go to big family gatherings, everybody else spoke Spanish, and she didn't. And that made her a little bit of an outlier, but the thing that really was difficult for her and the thing that still touches me all these years later, her card came in almost 10 years ago now, was when she talked about her grandmother and how mm-hmm. all of us had a different relationship with her grandmother because her grandmother had a different personality in her native language, which was Spanish. So grandma was funny in Spanish. She was just more loving, less halting. And she never could establish the same relationship as her cousins could. When we put that story, that was one of the stories we actually did when I worked at NPR on the radio. And so many people wrote in to say, oh my goodness, I have a similar experience. My family was from Latvia. My family was from Slovenia. My family was from Greece. My family is Nigerian. And when we came to America, we wanted to be American. We wanted to eat tater tots. We wanted to eat pizza. <laughs> we speak without an accent. We wanted to you know, wear what all the other kids were wearing. And as a result, I realized now as an adult that I lost a little bit of my culture. I don't speak Tagalog. I don't speak you know, the particular dialogue of Greece, of Greek that my parents speak, and I go now to family gatherings, and there's laughter on that side of the room that I can't participate in mm-hmm. because I never sopped that up. I and, mean, and, and even, the, say yeah, one last thing. Yeah, yeah. African culture, you know, someone saying that when they go back home, that there's the card table over there, 
because the family never taught them how to play bid with, right? Because they wanted to teach them how to play chess or checkers or something like that. And then they go home and like, I can't even get in the game because you can't right. roll in a whisk game unless you have some skill. And so, you know, it, it, it speaks across so many cultures. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the great example about, um, uh, about the Spanish example, and even that example that you just mentioned about, you know, bid whist and the card games is how much, I think when people think about discussions about, about race, that it is something that's happening out there to some people or to me or to you. And what the race car project shows is that this is happening inside the home between and among people that have nothing to do with the outside world. In the, in the book, I describe it like the experience I would have as a kid in the I was raised in Minnesota much of my summers in Birmingham, Alabama, where my father was from. And in both communities, grew up in working class communities where people didn't have air conditioning. That was a luxury. So instead, people had fans and they left the windows open all summer. Mm-hmm. And so or when you were riding around on your Stingray bike or you know roller skating up and down the alleys or playing tag or whatever, you could hear people's lives in a different way because all the windows were open. People were sleeping on in, in screen porches in the back of their house, you could just hear uh, the neighborhood living out loud. And this project is a little bit like that for me. I feel like I'm roaming through the streets of America when the windows are open and you're hearing the kinds of things that people usually only say in the basement, at the kitchen table, in the bedroom, in the backyard, at the barbecue. And because of that, I feel like I'm eavesdropping with permission. And people serve up that, you know, the conversations that they're having, their experience with race. They also serve up histories. You know, Jonathan, when I spoke to you all those years ago, one of the cards that that surfaced that I always remembered was someone talking about um, a mixed marriage. Uh, his wife is now gone, but he's he's white and his wife was African-American. And she was one of the first Secret Service officers. And he talked about how she was decorated and there were big ceremonies where people remembered her as um, a a groundbreaker, as someone who broke barriers, a first, but also how difficult it was for her to walk into an environment of mainly men as a woman and as a woman of color. And he, you know, wrote a little bit of that history. And it has made me think about how this project also serves up histories that are unavailable to us because it's not in history books. It's the kind of thing that people maybe share with their family members. But he noted in sharing that, that that's something that they they didn't talk much about. And hearing us talk about this all those years ago on um, on that podcast made him think, I, I want America to know her story. And he decided to share it with us. Wow. You know, the, the, the race car project has evolved over, over all these years. And you decided... Um, at some point, you tell us when that you added two words to your to your six word prompt, and that was anything else. You've said that that changed everything. How so? It's now four words. You know, anything else to share? But at first, it was just two words. Anything else? And originally, on the postcards, we were primarily just getting six words because that's all you had room for. You saw some of those on the screen. Sometimes people would give us their background information in the beginning a lot of people would sign anonymous or they would sign anon 
And I, I actually thought there was a new name <laughs> that, <laughs> that I just didn't know that a lot of people were named Anon. And, uh, and my kids said, mom, that's anonymous, that's short for anonymous. And so a lot of the cards at the beginning were anonymous, but then very quickly within the year, people started signing their names and then sending contact info. And then when we created the website and people would send in cards digitally, they would still stick to six words. But once we gave them space to explain their six words, that's when we really got deep because people had a chance to tell us, this is my story. This is why I chose these six words. And sometimes it would be just a sentence or two. Sometimes it would be a paragraph. Sometimes it would be a little essay. Sometimes an entire treatise. They would send us photographs. They would send us background information. They would send us historic documents. And that's that was about two years in. And that's when I realized, okay, we're building a living archive. And I've got to figure out how to protect this information and be a an adequate conservator for this information because people were often telling me things or sharing things that they hadn't said out loud. And as mm -hmm. a journalist and as a storyteller, I realized that I have to take seriously this role as a story collector. And now that we've entered a point where people are trying to erase history and people are trying to shut down conversations about race, you had one of the cards that was a stop racism, stop talking about it mm -hmm. as if, not talking about it is going to stop racism. I don't think that's how it works. So at this point, I'm a storyteller who has become a story collector. And at this point in my life, I feel like a bit of a story defender also, you know, protecting the archive so that it will exist for people later on who want to look back on this moment and understand this period bookended by the presidents of Barack Obama and Donald Trump and then Joe Biden and punctuated by a global pandemic and the charging of the Capitol and uh, chaos at the border and climate change and all these things that are happening are evident, you know, in a very granular way when people are telling their own stories within the race car project and a story defender also in the sense of um, helping us figure out how we can understand a difficult topic, but at the same time, look back at a difficult history. You know, there's an entire chapter in the book, which um, is part of an essay that appeared in the pages of the Washington Post about, you know, look at Germany by contrast, which has not embraced a difficult history, but has figured out how to at least look over its shoulder and acknowledge that it happened. Mm -hmm. Teach that history to all of its school children to honor not um, the defeated heroes of a war that was lost, but rather the victims. Uh, so through stumbling stones where you see, where, you know, who used to live in a building um, and you would see the, you know, the date of their birth and the date of their death and the circumstance of their death under the Third Reich, you know, that kind of thing we can't imagine here in America. But Germany has figured out how to do that. And so at a time when people are trying to enter a period of historic amnesia, um, that I'm hoping that a project like this, which makes a space for people to tell their stories and also listen to someone else, will create. I guess, a larger army of story defenders who realize that there's strength in looking over our shoulder, even at a difficult history, because it helps us, if nothing else, measure how far we've come. Right. And, and to that point, oh, sorry. finish that last point. I missed it. Just acknowledge that and never take it for granted. Right. Right. You know, to, to your point about people, once you gave them you know, the extra anything else and people sharing things that they may have never shared with anyone before. You tell the story of a Korean businessman who 
shared how he secretly was rooting for Asian gang members he saw in the news because they represented a tougher image of Asian men that wasn't seen in pop culture, only to shake his head and say to you, God, that felt good. I've been wanting to say that for years. That was at an event in Los Angeles. We were at KPCC. Um, and he kind of sidled up next to me and, 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 and you know, shared the story. And um, prominent businessman says that, you know, he, he's not like rooting for gangs necessarily. He's not saying gangs are a good right. thing. But what he was saying is that Asian men too often in his estimation were portrayed as being smart but soft. And in talking to him, you know, he pointed out something that I have never forgotten. If you look at many indices of achievement in America, Asian um, students, Asian workers in certain classes are often over-indexed, over-represented. They overperform in terms of success. And yet they are absent from the managerial class. So they do quite well in, you know, in, in fields sometimes in which they dominate, but you don't see them in similar numbers, in numbers that would be commensurate to their levels of achievement in the management class, in say tech or medicine or academia. Um, and, and again, it was that little story, you know, opening that up and opening it up a way for him to talk about that. Uh, I don't know that he's ever said it again, but I know he said it to me for the first time. And <laughs> it, it felt good to say that. And I'd like to think that having found, having been empowered to say that, that maybe he would be more willing to say those kinds of things in a, in a different space, you know, to share that with someone else. And I hope that someone in reading that story, you know, would understand, hmm, you know, why does this happen? Am mm -hmm. I propagating, you know, this image without even thinking about it? You know, it sort of reminds me of um, maybe an equivalent when there's a the the story of some kind of crime or something really bad, but you don't know who it is yet, and you're bracing yourself. Please don't let it be one of us. Please don't let it be one of us. And I've, I mean, African American. I know African Americans do it, but I have also heard that Jewish friends do it. Um, yes. Latino friends do it. Everyone's afraid that no, please don't let don't let them be one of us because of the negative um, uh, characterizations it would put on us. But I, it, can you believe we are already 30 minutes in? Uh, we're going extra. We're going extra, Michelle, in this conversation as we knew we would because this is such a fantastic topic. And one of the things that was probably most sur surprising to you. We started this conversation by saying how white people always say, you're playing the race card to shut the conversation down. And yet, the a lot of the people you're getting, you've been getting cards from are white. Why do you think that is? I, I don't know. I know I used to think, first of all, just to explain this, in the 14 years that we've been doing this, for most of those years, the majority of the cards have come from white Americans. That completely surprised me. Because conversations about race are so often for, by, about people of color and usually black people. I did not expect mm. it. has been a pleasant surprise. I mean, I appreciate it because, again, it takes me into places and conversations and <clears throat> tendrils into American life that I would not normally have access to. But if we're honest about this, in our big, grand conversations about race, 
white Americans often get a kind of bystander status because whiteness has been constructed as sort of the cultural default in America and everything else is sort of outside of that. In this case, you ask why so many people did it for a while. I thought, was it because I was on National Public Radio and the majority of the listeners are white? But I've been, you know, I haven't hosted a show at National Public Radio since 2012. And I haven't been at National Public Radio since 2015. So I don't think that's it. And a lot of people who write in have never heard of National Public Radio. Um, I, I, one thing I can say is that I hear from people all the time who feel like they don't have an entry ramp into these conversations, that they don't participate because mm-hmm. they're, they're thought not to be welcome that there's not a seat at the table for them. And this is another example of modeling that when people come to the site and they see, oh, white people get to say something too? Oh, okay, well, I have something to say. And that may be a big part of it, is that by modeling, people see I have a seat at the table, I'm allowed to be deep, I'm allowed to be honest, I'm allowed to be candid, so that's what I'm going to do. And maybe one of the lessons there is the importance of modeling when we do hard things or, or when we have, you know, hard conversations. And the benefit for me in hearing from so many white Americans from America, and we've also heard, we've received submissions from more than 100 countries, the benefit of having a big data set like that is that you get to hear lots of different perspectives. So when people say, well, you've heard from so many white people, what are they saying? It's like, well, how much time do you have? Because <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's not one thing. And that's a benefit. It's not a homogenous culture, just as when people say, well, what do black people think about this? It's like, well, that's a big cohort. You know, I'm not sure that we want to take one point of view and let that one point of view represent an entire entire culture. That's what Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie talks about when she talks about the danger of a single story. And the benefit from having such a large cohort is that we hear from lots of different people. The irony is that we hear from a lot of people, you know, when they're honest, they say, I'm tired of this. I wish we didn't have to talk so much about race. But here they are submitting a card talking about race. Right. And the honesty, uh, I'm just going to read some that are here in, 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 um, in uh, some of the white responses. Um, don't hate me because I'm white. Um, white conservative, don't assume I'm racist. Because I'm white, I'll never understand. Um, it's okay to be white, which which comes up uh, a lot. Um, there was another one. Then there, there there are these two to just to give the range. Owe you nothing. I'm not responsible. And then this one: white guilt misses the entire point. And here this person says this is has a whole long thing. This is from Gabriel Duret from Tucson. That's the other thing that I love about this. We, people's names and where they live are attached to these six words. And he writes, this isn't about me. It's about all the people who were and are treated cruelly because of what they look like. Instead of wallowing in self-pity, I should be getting angry on their behalf. I shouldn't feel like because I'm white, I can't possibly contribute anything to ending racism. Um, And he he keeps going on. And at the end of it, I was like screaming, amen. But that is part of the part of the point here in you know conversations about about race aren't the responsibility of people of color solely and and the lesson here is that oftentimes you hear it in the the selection that you read that a lot of white americans are on the defensive about their race they feel like 
and pigeonholed. When you talk about stereotyping, it usually applies to people of color on the stereotypes that they are burdened with, that they feel like they carry, the things that confine or define them. A lot of white Americans are feeling that something confines and defines them also when it doesn't feel good to them. And and that's and that's clear in in the stories that they share. The other reason that I'm glad that so many white Americans participated in this project and honored me with their stories is because it helps us understand that in order to look at race and racism and to figure out how to, I'm not going to say solve these problems, but at least figure out how to interrogate them and to get to a point where, where we can coexist despite our differences, that that is not an assignment that can only be channeled toward people of color. That white Americans have to participate in that process, not as bystanders, because they participate fully in American life. And this is something that that fully touches almost every aspect of American life. And when we think about how we talk about race or how we try to figure out how to deal with matters of race, we often don't turn to white Americans with the same degree of expectation. Um, you know, there's it, it, we see this in politics, for instance, we're in a po- political season right now. When someone of color runs, we always wonder, OK, when are they going to give their big speech about race? Mm-hmm. That's just patient. Do we expect the same of white candidates? Should we? Because this is one of the you know largest issues in American life. And there are lots of ways to talk about it without necessarily talking about it through the prism of racism or through the prism of DEI. It's about you know, Americans figuring out how to live with each other, how to occupy this shared space, this shared, this shared planet. Um, so yes, I was surprised when I put the basket on the table. I did not know that I would be embarking on a 14-year odyssey of listening to white Americans talk about race. That was unexpected. <laughs> and yet, I am a better storyteller. I am a uh, better journalist. I am um, a better chronicler of American life because I have had a unique opportunity to hear from people talk about a subject that that many people have a hard time talking about. I have greatly benefited from the people who have taken the time to share their stories and have allowed me then to share it with others through this book and through this project. Michelle, I have still about another three hours worth of, que- <laughs> worth of questions and not nearly enough, don't even have that time. Um, but I want to thank you for coming back again to the K-Part podcast, but also to congratulate you on this phenomenal book. I will admit I have not read the whole thing <laughs> yet um, because it, it's a it's a big book, folks. Oh, where's the camera? There's the camera. It's a big book, but folks should folks should pick it up because it is it is terrific. It is called Our Hidden Conversations: What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Michelle Norris. Thank you, as always, for coming to K-Part and Washington Post Live. Love you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to K-Part. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan K-Part. You can find me on Twitter at K-Part J.